Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 127 for the week ending November 2, 2018, the We Are the Champions edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 600 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In today's episode, we take a look at some of the compliance lessons from the Boston Red Sox World Series Championship, the failures and successes from the University of Maryland and their termination of their disgraced football coach. We look at Cognizant, who set aside money for an FCPA settlement, and Walmart settling a shareholder action over its FCPA investigation. GIR announces the top investigative firms and doles out awards in its fourth annual awards dinner. There's an article on reputational hit impacting the bottom line. Matt Kelly asks, is Michigan State serious about compliance? More on the ongoing Petavesa corruption scandal and the uh, 1MDB scandal breaks with indictments and guilty pleas. Leslie Caldwell talks about uh, compliance being critical to the Department of Justice and a sting operation involving the FCPA in Haiti. We take a look at upcoming uh, FCPA masterclass training that I'm putting on and the NAVEX Global Virtual Ethics and Compliance Conference. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 127 for the week ending November 2, 2018. The Q, the Queen song, We Are the Champions. Edition. Uh, the Boston Red Sox thrashed the L.A. Dodgers, bringing back home the trophy to Boston for the fourth time in 15 years. What's it like to support such a lovable loser? Fortunately, we were going to answer that question because, as always, we have Mr. Monitors Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Thank you, Tom. And as you always refer to me as a homer, and Boston is the home of affiliated monitors. I think everything ties together on this first Friday in November. And i um, very happy to be a world champ. You know what the feeling was uh, last year, and I'm going to exploit it for the next 360 plus days as long as I can. So, Jay, uh, we had, uh, turns out, quite a fun-filled compliance and ethics week. So why don't we just... Uh, jump right into it. Uh, we're going to talk about the Red Sox and the World Series, but why don't you maybe hold that one till the end so it gives you a chance to expound a little bit further. Um, but from the sporting world, we had what uh, I thought was going to be a just a horrible story. Uh, it turned out that uh, while uh, not a very big 
uh, ending, at least a better ending, and that <clears throat> revolved around the Board of Regents of the Systems of the University of Maryland uh, Universities earlier this week had reinstated Coach D.J. Durkin, who, uh, for those uh, who may not remember, uh, <clears throat> there was a player who had died in a workout, and Coach Durkin and the strength coach, uh, strength coach resigned. Coach Durkin was suspended pending an investigation. Uh, the investigation concluded that although not a toxic atmosphere, it was a bad atmosphere for this coach. But interestingly, the Board of Regents actually blamed the university president for not supporting the coach and told the university president that even though he did want to fire him, if he did fire him, the university president would be fired. I wrote a excoriating blog post uh, which I was going to post on the FCPA blog, but um, overnight uh, the ruckus and row was so large and so vociferous that uh, the president, uh, President Lowe of the University of Maryland, uh, the next day fired the coach. And the vociferous voices were wide-ranging, from the governor of the state of Maryland to the student body president to the players. Uh, social media outrage just poured out. And so uh, the coach was fired the next day. Uh, it was a uh, really uh, interesting series of lessons, one on the role of a board, uh, two on uh, what is culpability and when do you as the captain of the ship have to uh, stand up and take responsibility for something that might come up under your watch. So we certainly uh, we're going to be watching this to see how it may all pan out. But uh, frankly, uh, I was uh, I thought it was the appropriate Remedy to terminate the coach. My question is just from a, a, I guess, medical perspective. Why do we always hear about these tragedies? I mean, shouldn't coaches and their staff know enough that if you're uh, an over 300-pound person, you, you've got all that gear strapped on and you're doing workouts and, uh, you know, 90 to 100 degrees in uh, humidity, shouldn't they uh, be ready for these telltale times? And maybe they're just pushing the players too hard. So that was uh, one of the things that offended me the most about this, Jay. Uh, having grown up playing um, football, basketball, track, and baseball in the South, uh, heat stroke is something that you're always cognizant of. Uh, junior high coaches were cognizant of it. And they keep uh, they always kept water or ice or something uh, nearby if some someone did have that problem. Uh, the The issue here was the uh, trainer head trainer was running these workout sessions and apparently uh, they did not um, not only not prepare for such an eventuality but actually thought the player was dogging it so they uh, forced him to do actually more work. So a uh, lots of um, some basic health and safety was ignored uh, right out of the box. Wow. It's certainly a tragedy. Um, next up, uh, Cognizant has set aside uh, $28 million for an FCPA settlement, and this came out in their uh, recent earnings call, which said, um, as a reminder, in September 2016, the company voluntarily notified the DOJ and SEC of uh, potential FCPA violations relating to facilities in India. During 2016, uh, they recorded out-of-pocket uh, corrections uh, to $4 million of potentially improper payments. 
discussion with DOJ and the SEC has progressed to a point to give some visibility, and they have now set aside $28 million in their financials for Q3. So uh, this looks like something that, uh, you know, when, when you hear uh, a company put away a reserve like that, it means that there usually is a resolution right around the corner. Um, what also was interesting was um, the company had previously said it fired or demoted individuals involved with the FCPA violations. And three days before publicly disclosing the FCPA investigations in 2016, the company's former president, Gordon Coburn, resigned and was replaced internally by Rajiv Menta formerly head of the business IT division. So uh, I, I think, uh, you know, that's that's the information we have. It's pretty much uh, uh, bare bones on this one. Tom, anything to add on it? No, uh, I guess uh, we're just going to have to wait and see what the resolution is, whether it be a declination with disgorgement, whether it be DPA, N- MPA, or other. So then we can really see uh, kind of what the lessons to be learned from the compliance perspective may be or may have been. All right. Why don't you tell us what's happening with our friends in Bentonville? So Walmart settled uh, one of the outstanding shareholder class action suits uh, for uh, $160 million relating to the U.S. government's ongoing investigation of the FCPA violations uh, stemming out of their Mexico operation. Uh, it was uh, interesting. It was bookended, we found out today, by another shareholder lawsuit that had been previously dismissed that the uh, cl- shareholder class is trying to uh, get reinstated in the Second Circuit. But uh, So it's not clear uh, which of the shareholder lawsuits was settled. Nevertheless, $160 million is is a far above nuisance value uh, that we've seen in FCPA shareholder uh, actions. And uh, the question I think probably on all of our minds, Jay, is – what does this mean in terms of uh, a final settlement for Walmart of its uh, massive FCPA enforcement action? What will the form of that settlement take? Uh, I don't think it would be a declination with disgorgement, but uh, we had uh, obviously Petrobras receiving an NPA, so that possibly could be on the table, a DPA could be on the table, or our other resolution. Uh, so if this moves the ball forward on Walmart, Uh, I think that's uh, certainly a positive statement. Since 2012, Walmart has spent $892 million on internal investigations and related compliance improvements. It has previously said, um, following up on your point on Cognizant, that it would set aside $283 million in anticipation of a likely settlement. So perhaps there's a settlement of the longstanding Walmart case, uh, now six years or uh, five and a half years, uh, six and a half years, I guess, ongoing. Uh, and if we can get this one resolved, it's uh, one of the big ones. That's, and hopefully there'll be uh, numerous lessons which can be learned from the settlement documents as well. Highly anticipated, to say the least. Um, to say the very least. Next up, we have something that's uh, very interesting from our folks at GIR, Global Investigations Review. And uh, we're going to link to it in the show notes. Unfortunately, it's behind the firewall, so you need to be a a member of it. But what they do is they do a yearly ranking of the top 30, top 40, and top 100 um, uh, FCPA and white-collar investigations firms. And what they do is uh, take a lot of different data points. Uh, Sometimes the 
best work that is done by outside counsel uh, never sees the light of day because the client uh, does not get charged. There is no penalty paid. But a lot of these um, matters we've read about in the papers, and GII does a real good job of following um, you know, who was involved in the latest cases, who becomes um, – you know, monitors and things like that. So what they look at here is they look at matters and they try to say, uh, rank them as to whether it's a corporate internal investigation or if it's internal investigation. So they look at that. Their factors they take into effect are who's who legal nominees, uh, the number of partners that are in the practice, uh, the global spread of where these partners are located, whether or not any of these are former government enforcers, uh, with the revolving door being a little bit more quicker here in the U.S. than the U.K. and elsewhere, that still gives uh, the law firms insight into the latest thinking of the government. As I said before, monitors, travel, clients. And uh, in the top ten, we saw some uh, movement. Gibson Dunn reclaimed the top spot from Wilmer Hale. Uh, the top ten are Gibson Dunn. Hogan's Lovell, Wilmer Hale, Scatter Narps, Double Voice and Plimpton, Baker McKenzie, Herbert Smith Freehills, Sidley Austin, Quinn Emanuel, and Clifford Chance. So it's a nice mixture of, I guess it's really hard to say now that you, you could either classify them as U.S. firms with global reach or global firms and then some magic circle firms too. And one other um, honorable mention coming in at 21 is Miller and Shelby. Uh, this is a single location firm in D.C., but we've talked about it numerous times in the past. Our friend Matt Ellis heads up their Latin American group, which is one of the best in the business. So get a hand on this. Uh, this thing helpful for in-house counsel. Um, God forbid you have a situation could have some of these folks not only on speed dial, but you should know them right now because they could be the answer uh, to a big problem if it shows up in your doorstep. So next up, Jay, we had, I uh, thought, a really interesting article from a reporter I had previously not seen in the compliance space named Minky Sun on the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. And in this article, uh, the reporter or the author took a look at the uh, loss of trust that companies uh causes companies to have actual uh, dollar losses. So reputational damage can lead directly to loss in revenue. Now, the report by Accenture uh, said that there were over a hundred and uh, half the companies uh, analyzed reported a drop as much as $180 billion total on a worldwide basis. Unfortunately, that is uh, aggregated, so we don't have the individual losses um, by companies, but it certainly points to something that uh, we've talked about, and I think a lot of other compliance commentators are talking about, which is reputational damage leads directly to a loss on the bottom line. And it affected uh, companies a wide variety of industri industries, banking, utilities, travel, transportation, uh, as social media uh, amplifies uh, all forms of news, whether it be political, sports, business, or other, that the um, the cost could be much, much greater, and companies are finally recognizing reputational risks are material and disclosing them in a financial statements uh, and really have done so uh, for some few years. But 
uh, as social media becomes more and more pronounced, this is something that uh, boards of directors are going to have to start considering. Certainly, uh, the compliance profession and compliance officers help this situation with a robust compliance program. And I think this is only going to drive compliance more to the center of business and require a greater operationalization of your compliance program going forward. And we kind of have a corollary to that that we've been speaking about since uh, the conference last week is that ethical companies are better run companies and more profitable. I think that would be the uh, positive side of uh, the fact that you don't lose uh, your reputation because you run a clean company. Uh, Next up, we have something from uh, Matt Kelly over at Radical Compliance. And uh, once again, Michigan State uh, reorganizes it. And uh, basically, in June, they set up, created to to deal with some of the ethics and compliance lapses that uh, came from the USA Gymnastics and the Larry Nassar case. And then... uh, Basically, uh, the uh, chairman of the school now has come back and said that they have a separate office of ethics, risk management and compliance, and that they are now going to combine this under audit and risk and compliance. Uh, And a woman named Marilyn Tarrant, Michigan State Audit since 2015, will oversee the new office. So uh, Matt is hoping that they finally have got this right. One of the good things is is that uh, Ms. Tarrant will report directly to the board, which will give her uh, a, a clear shot to raise anything, any issues and problems. And, um, you know, Matt's worry is that the arrangement does bring some clarity, but for an institution as large as Michigan State, 59,000 students, $1.3 billion budget, 596 research grants, uh, compliance should be an off unto itself, given how many concerns the compliance director will need to address. Uh, Tom, you're a former alumnus. Any thoughts on your alma mater? So uh, full disclosure, I'm a Michigan State grad, so I'm vested in uh, with a lot of interest in this. Um, I'm very disturbed by this, Jay. Uh, I think it really continues what I see is the current interim president, John Engler, just really does not get it. And he doesn't understand uh, what compliance is. He does. He thinks it's simply uh, setting out the rules and regulations. And he doesn't understand that it's all about culture. And uh, he has continually made cultural missteps. And I think this is one more. Uh, Matt is not as forlorn in hope as I am. But uh, we'll just have to see how uh, um, it plays out. Matt notes that several uh, universities and indeed uh, not-for-profit companies uh, have this uh, structure as well, so perhaps it will work at Michigan State. Uh, but given uh, how or uh, the number of missteps and lack of transparency that the university has engaged in so far, um, I'm not as hopeful as Matt is. All right. So one of my favorite global oil companies is Petavesa. What's happening with our friends in Venezuela? So we had a couple of interesting um, 
guilty pleas and sentencing this week around uh, Petavesa, the Venezuelan national oil company. I think most of our listeners, Jay, are aware of the ongoing scandal, what the Department of Justice has uh, been prosecuting. There was corruption in their supply chain. Several former procurement officers at uh, Venezuela Petavesa have pled guilty to money laundering charges. Here we had a Texas gentleman, Ivan Alexis Gudez, uh, also pled guilty to money laundering charges. Um, so it's going to be, uh, uh, he has not yet been sentenced. So it's going to be interesting to see what his sentence is. But, uh, the second, uh, no- noteworthy news item was that a former Julius Baer executive was sentenced to 10 years for his role in the money laundering. Now, this was a fellow named Matthias Kruhl, who was a German national who lived in Panama. He had pled guilty in August to a count of conspiracy for money laundering, but he was a banker in this. And he was a banker in this, not on the same bribery scheme that Mr. Uh, Gudez was involved in, which was payment of bribes to secure contracts. This was outright theft. This was fraud by certain high-ranking Petavesa officials to steal up to $1.2 billion, or I suppose embezzle would be the uh, more appropriate legal term, $1.2 billion from the company and uh, get it out of uh, Petavesa and paid into Swiss bank accounts. And that was Mr. Cruel's role in this. So in addition to the bribery and corruption to obtain contracts, we had outright embezzlement uh, from Petavesa. Um I've been following Petavesa and this story for some time, and the company has just been decimated. It is producing less oil than it did literally 40 years ago. It's about one-tenth the value of what it was. And for the country of Venezuela, this has decimated the country as well. Uh, it's in continuous economic crisis. The uh, regime, Maduro regime, is uh, very antithetical to our current uh, U.S. regime. So uh, there's lots of conflicts and potential conflicts, but without the cash flow from Venezuela, which frankly has the world's largest oil reserves behind Saudi Arabia. Um, and if they lose Sitco as an asset uh, and have only the uh, limited resources of the currently producing Petavesa properties, it's going to be very, very difficult. So when you have this type of outright theft, I think it really speaks to an entire culture of corruption, not simply by functionaries in the procurement department, but uh, high-level executives were also doing everything they could to steal from Petavesa. So a new wrinkle in an old case, and uh, we'll just have to see uh, where the corruption takes us. All righty. Next up, we've got um, a couple articles, one from Harry Kasson uh, over at the FCPA blog, and another one, uh, I guess Sam Rubenfeld's just been writing about each company every day. And uh, basically, prosecutors charge a businessman in a bribery case that involved a sting. Uh, An American businessman was charged on Tuesday for his alleged role in a plot to bribe senior government officials in Haiti for access to a proposed $84 million port development project. Roger Richard Bouncy, 74, or Bouncy rather, uh, a dual U.S. and Haitian citizen, planned to launder funds through a nonprofit uh, to pay bribes, the DOJ said. A Bouncy, who lives in Madrid, was charged with one count of conspiracy to violate the FCPA 
and the Travel Act and one count of violating the Travel Act and one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. Uh, he was working with a co-conspirator, Joseph Baptiste, who was charged previously in October of 2007. Uh, the $84 million Mole St. Nicolas project included construction of multiple cement factories, a shipping vessel recycling station, and an international transshipment station with numerous ships, uh, slips for shipping vessels, a power plant, a petroleum depot, and tourist facilities. So what's interesting about this, Tom, and I, I think you can give us a little context, is that this actually involved a sting operation. And the last time we had uh, the government doing a sting operation in the FCPA arena involved the uh, arms business. And, and that was – was that called Shore Shot? Uh, gun sting. Gun sting, yeah. Oh. So I think that was – Around the first time we met in D.C., you were actually in town for those hearings, and I think I met you and Mike Volkov for the first time. So, yes, a very rare sting case. Uh, the government uh, really took a spanking uh, in those. They uh, were not able to secure any convictions and ended up uh, dismissing all of the uh, defendants who took took the matter to trial. So... Uh, it, it, it once again shows that the government, though, will use all of the tools in its arsenal. And if you have a propensity to engage in criminal activity and you sniff around, the government can certainly uh, find you and get you uh, uh, ensnare you in a sting operation. So we had some thoughts from uh, Leslie Caldwell and Christopher Ting about compliance. You want to tell us about those, Jay? Yep. So this is um, in response to the Minkowski uh, memo that <coughs> came out for uh, about a couple weeks ago. It's entitled The Selection of Monitors in Criminal Division Matters. And basically it brought a clarification to uh, the mechanism on how to select monitors. But it also um, talked about how that they actually see a, a decline in the, the role of uh, monitors going forward. Uh, basically, it supersedes the 2009 department memorandum on selection of monitors, but still retains the 2008 memorandum, which is known as the Morford Memo. Um, basically, uh, the criminal division will consider whether to require monitors going forward, and the factors that it will take into effect are whether the underlying misconduct was a result of inadequate compliance or internal controls, the pervasiveness of the misconduct with the organization and or involvement of senior management, improvements made since the underlying misconduct of the company's compliance program, and the likelihood that any remedial efforts would prevent future occurrences of the underlying conduct. So, um, you know, a couple things that was also mentioned in the menu and the menu in the memo was that <clears throat> Wei Chen, who was the former uh, ethics and compliance guru who left the uh, uh, the DOJ in 2017. Uh, Benkowski has specifically said that they don't see themselves replacing that position, and they want to go ahead and hire more uh, prosecutors who have ethics and compliance background. And in the article, uh, Caldwell and Ting question whether or not that is really the best way to help companies uh, going ahead, especially when there's so much different um, specificity involved in compliance for different industries. So they're uh, 
you know, hopeful that the uh, the one thing that's going to really help companies, and this is my key tip takeaway, is that an assessment of a company's compliance program will remain a, remain a key priority for the criminal division, both in assessing whether criminal charges are warranted and then whether or not a monitor is appropriate. So I, I think the, the big takeaway is that you still need to make sure that your internal ethics and compliance posture is good, and that should take care of your problems going forward. And if you haven't updated your ethics and compliance program in the last several years, uh, in light of this late, latest memo, it might be an opportune time for you to take a look and see where you're at vis-a-vis -vis other people in your industry. So, Jay, uh, we have saved, uh, other than, of course, we are the champions discussion, the biggest news of the week in the bribery and corruption and FCPA world to the last and that was the indictments uh, released actually yesterday against a ex-Goldman banker, Roger Ning, and Jay Lowe around the 1MDB scandal and the guilty plea by ex-Goldman banker uh, Tim Leisner to FCPA and money laundering violations. This was uh, – when you're on the front page of both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, uh, I can only say it's a big story. So the um, – uh, the huge uh, multi-billion dollar theft of money from MDB is hopefully moving toward sort of judicial resolution. Uh, both the Times and the Journal point out <clears throat> the difficult position Goldman Sachs is now in because they were paid over $600 million in fees for the one MDB uh, uh, transactions they were involved in. They were bond offerings. We have an uh, uh, executive director, we have a managing director, and we have other employees involved uh, from, from Goldman Sachs. So it's really not going to be clear what the result might be for Goldman. But um, as of yesterday, a, a stunning guilty plea by Tim Leisner, the uh, Goldman partner in charge of the 1NDB relationship, uh, he was uh, pled guilty, agreed to forfeiture of uh, some $44 million in uh, profits he made personally. Uh, his uh, direct, uh, one of his direct assistants, Mr. Ning, that's spelled NG, uh, was indicted, and then Jay Lo also indicted. Uh, Lo is uh, uh, reported to hiding in China, and Ning was arrested in Singapore. So uh, lots to really think about and talk about uh, from the uh, 1MDB perspective and something that uh, certainly we will continue to watch. So we have um, uh, come to the part that I know you've been waiting for, which was where you cue in, we are the champions, we are the champions of the world. But more importantly, what do the champions of the world have to tell us uh, and lessons to give to the compliance practitioners of the world, Jay? Great question, Tom, and I'm glad we saved this for last. Um, your colleague at Compliance Week, uh, Joe Mont, uh, took a look at the managerial styles of the Dodgers, Dave Roberts, and the uh, World Series champion manager of the Red Sox, Alex Cora. And although there has been a popularity of using analytics for the last, I guess, 10 years or so, dating back to the Michael Lewis's Moneyball, uh, the point that Joe seems to make is that um, 
Roberts was just a hundred percent going by the analytics and either did not choose to trust his gut or as they're saying on sports radio here in LA, he wasn't able to make those choices. Whereas Cora was able to factor in and using analytics, but deciding that yes, there would be um, a favorable uh, outcome if he brought in a certain hitter against a certain pitcher at the right time of the game. So that's my takeaway from Joe. And it seems like, you know, uh, with respects to Adam Turtletaub, that the Dodgers have two years in a row, last year to your A.J. Hinch-led Astros and this year's to the Red Sox. And, you know, I, I think uh, either of their current bench coaches will probably uh, be highly considered to take, take on managing other teams. But I definitely believe that just kind of like we talk about in an ethics and compliance and an operationals perspective, uh, there is a way to glean certain analytics, but the analytics alone do not tell you which way to go, that you need to take your common sense, your past experience, and you have to use all that information and then, based on a decision, move forward. So that's my takeaway from Joe's thing. And, um, you know, I, 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 I think it worked out pretty well for the Bo Sox this year. Uh, I think it did, Jay. But, Jay, I had a, a lesson for compliance officers in a little bit different direction. And that comes from Dodger manager Dave Roberts. And, unfortunately, this is uh, you're going to have to learn something from the negative here. But, uh, as you probably recall, in game four, the Dodgers were up four, four nothing, And they had a pitch throwing a one-hitter. Um, I think it was Andrew Hill, but I may have his first name wrong. And at the start of the sixth inning, Hill tells manager Roberts uh, something along the lines of, I'm getting a little tired. Watch me while I'm out there. So the first batter up gets a single and Roberts goes to the mound. And as Roberts reaches the mound, this is Dodger manager, Dave Roberts, Hill hands him the ball and walks off. Um, there was lots of questions about why Roberts would remove a pitcher who had thrown a one-hitter uh, to that point and had a 4-0 lead in the sixth. And it turns out it was all of this was either a miscommunication or an outright mistake. And the miscommunications were multiple. First of all, Roberts thought that Hill was telling him he was gassed and he was about to run out of gas. So... Um, that was Robert's misinterpretation of Hills telling him to watch him while I was on the mound. But more importantly, when Roberts went to the mound, he said he was not going out there to change pitchers. He was going out to talk to Hill to find out how he was feeling and to talk about pitching to the next Red Sox batter. Now, for those who watch baseball, uh, you know, you get two visits to the mound for per pitcher per inning. And the first visit is always a pitching coach. And it's either to do that, to talk to the pitcher, see how he's doing, see how he's feeling, talk to the infielders, to the catcher, or give the bullpen a little time to warm up. The second visit is always the manager, and the manager is the one who makes the change. And as the manager walks out, he raises his left arm or right arm to, to indicate which reliever he wants to come into the game if there are left-handers and right-handers warming up. Well, Roberts, uh, this was the first visit to the mound. So when, as Roberts was walking out, 
Hill assumed because it was the manager, he was being pulled. Now, Roberts did not raise his arm, uh, so he gave no signal of who he wanted. And uh, you very rarely see a pitcher put his hand out with the ball to give to the manager. Occasionally you see that, but almost always it's the manager who reaches his hand out to get the ball to communicate to the pitcher, you know, I'm sorry, or but I'm pulling you, whatever, or perhaps good job, I'm pulling you. So Roberts uh, thought he was going out to talk. Hill thought Roberts was coming out to pull him. Roberts, excuse me, Hill gave Roberts the ball. At that point, uh, Roberts has no choice. He cannot keep Hill in the game. Hill said, I'm gone, and begins to walk off the mound. So uh, several missed communications, several missed signals, uh, several nuances between uh, pitcher and manager that were missed, and that led to, and certainly contributed to, the Dodgers uh, falling apart and losing that game because the Red Sox uh, completely destroyed the uh, Dodger bullpen who came in thereafter. So I found that to be a really interesting, um, I don't know if it was cultural failure, uh, but it was certainly a communications failure. And the message I would give to a compliance officer is uh, be very careful and watch the signals that you're being given. And also watch the signals that you are giving. If you walk out to the mound, somebody may think you're coming out there to uh, replace them. Good stuff, Tom. Uh, coming up, uh, you've got a master class and some other uh, educational opportunities. Why don't you share that with our, our listeners? Sure. Uh, uh, Jonathan Marks and I are putting on a master class in New York on November 12 and 13th. I've got information uh, and registration details. Uh, November 8th, NAVEX is putting on its Ethics and Compliance Virtual Conference. I uh, had an opportunity to uh, uh, learn a little bit more about that, and that's going to be an excellent uh, virtual conference. It's complimentary. You do not have to be a, a product user of NAVEX. Check it out on the NAVEX site. Uh, two things I'd like to just mention, Jay, is I rolled out a, a new podcast this week, the Daily Compliance News or Coffee and Compliance with Tom is probably what it should be called, but I give uh, every uh, every one of our listeners a three-minute news summary update uh, each morning at seven, post at 7 a.m., so if you want to have a cup of coffee and check out the compliance news. And then I had a lot of fun with uh, another week of the intersection of Sherlock Holmes and compliance in my podcast series, Adventures in Compliance. I took a look at a study in Scarlet and a CCO exercising power, the valley of fear and using virtual teams for your compliance program uh, across the globe, the hounds of the Baskervilles and how to have uh, innovation in 90 days. Uh, then I look at innovation more generally through the context of the sign of four. And finally, uh, posting today will be uh, some thoughts of Sherlock Holmes as a teacher and how you can incorporate those into your compliance program. So, uh, Jay, any final thoughts before you take us home? Uh, well, in, in line with your, we are the champions, I'll... I'm uh, very much looking forward to the Queen Freddie Mercury movie, which is coming out this weekend, Bohemian Rhapsody. So uh, maybe it's, at some point it might enter into our conversation. Uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA 
episode 127 for the week ending November 2nd, the aforementioned We Are the Champion edition. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful weekend. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. I hope you'll join us again next week where Jay and I wrap up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.